Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi folks, welcome along to this week's episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. Uh, my weekly dive into the world, uh, the wonderful, beautiful, inspiring world of music and video. I say video, just move an image really. It could be film, it could be TV and games sometimes as well. But I just wanted to, it's so funny, I just started watching The Bear this week, which I know it doesn't matter. I say this all the time when it comes to music, film, art, actually. It doesn't matter when you come to it. If you come to it at some point and you get a reaction and it makes you feel a certain way, then it's a good thing. Uh, there is no expiry date on art. That's what I feel anyway. Um, so anyway, I started watching The Bear, obviously addicted to it, just finished the first season, about to start on the second. Um, and then I've also been watching Boiling Point. Now, you might have watched the film that came out, must be two years ago now, starring the brilliant Stephen Graham as the kind of lead chef in it. It was filmed in kind of real time, one shot. Crazy thing. I think they did it in COVID as well, if I remember rightly. It was a, an extraordinary film, really kind of, I think, because of that notion of the way they filmed it, as well as the environment they filmed it in, you really felt that tension and that heat of a kitchen. So I've been lucky enough that it's been adapted into a TV show that's coming to our screens very soon. And I was given the luxury of watching the first two episodes and it is brilliant. It takes the story on from where the film leaves off. That's all I can say, really. But um, I feel like I've been on a bit of a kind of culinary tip when it comes to my viewing at the minute. So I also wanted to draw your attention in a kind of triple whammy way to a little Thai film that's up on Netflix called Hunger which kind of tells the story of this this young girl who runs a kind of street food cafe and is kind of pushed to explore her limits, I guess, within the culinary world. It's so good. And I just thought I would draw your attention to it. So the bear, boiling point and hunger. Um, if you are not feeling hungry already, you will be after you watch one or any of those. But we've got loads of great stuff coming up on the show over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be talking to Volker Bertelmann, who we last spoke to with Edward Berger about their collaboration on the multi-award winning All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, Volker's got a, a new album out of his own original music, which we talk about amongst many, many other things, including All Quiet, reflecting on those Oscar and BAFTA wins and also working on Black Mirror and a number of other things. It's been so nice over the last couple of weeks, particularly really celebrating uh, British independent film. We've talked about Clock and Louder at Mercy Falls. We're going to be talking about Bally Walter in a couple of weeks as well, which is a beautiful little Irish film. And then also uh, an extraordinary documentary that's coming out on the 6th of October called 20 Days in Mariupol. Uh, this might be one of the hardest things I've ever had to watch, but I think one of the most important things. So I really want to try and get as many of you to watch this film as possible. Uh, the title of the film kind of tells you exactly what's going on. 20 Days in Mariupol, it's coming out on the 6th of October. And we're going to be talking to um, Jordan uh, Dijkstra, who's the composer of the, the film. It's brilliant. And we're continuing, actually, just quickly as well, Haunting in Venice, which is coming out in cinemas on Friday. We're going to be talking about that on next week's episode, but more on that at the end of the show. But we're continuing with our celebration of independent British films on soundtrack in this week with our latest guest, who is the phenomenal Charlotte Regan. She's the writer, director, 
of a film called Scrapper. Scrapper is outstanding. It's been in cinemas for a couple of weeks. It's still in cinemas. Please go and see it. Please support Charlotte and her brilliant team and independent film. And you will leave the cinema feeling rewarded uh, and your life will be enriched from watching this film. So it's still in cinemas. And I'm so grateful to Charlotte for responding to my random DMs on Instagram and finding the time to chat to me this week. The film features a remarkable central performance by a young lady called Lola Campbell, who is 11 years old. And the film tells the story of Lola's character, Georgie, who is forced to confront uh, a new domestic reality for a number of reasons. But one of those is when her estranged dad turns up. So that's all I'm going to say, because you need to be in the film, experience it to just fully enjoy it. Now, the film scored by Patrick Johnson, who... I've got to say huge thanks to Patrick because he was so kind to share some of his as yet unreleased cues for the film. And so we'll begin with one of them. This is Chase. Welcome to Soundtrack and listen, I've got to say thanks so much for responding to my bonkers uh, DMs on Instagram. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on this film. It's it's brilliant. Um, and I hope you don't mind, but I wanted to start by asking what you wanted to achieve when you originally started writing it. I don't know. I think I always wanted to make like um, a working class film that was like joyful. And I, I know yeah. there are, are lots like I, I love Shane's films and I love so many of them films, but... I think I'd just always like watched a lot growing up and been like, oh, like, I, I want to see the, the joy that I remember growing up, which is like playing out. And like when you're a kid, you don't know that you have less than anyone. Do you know what I mean? So you're just like your world is the only world and it's the best world. It's only when you move into like middle class film spaces that you're like, oh, maybe it's a bit different. So, yeah, I think it started it started with that. But to be honest, the story, it changed. It started as like a teenage boy and his nan on the run from gangsters. And it was much more like shootouts, like Guy Ritchie-esque. God knows where the story came from. I think my producer, Theo, was probably like, oh, that is flipping expensive, isn't it? What's that, the fourth shootout in, in 10 pages, Charlie? So it was probably, yeah, probably cheapening it down. Was Finding Lola, was she part of that journey then? Because, you know, in terms of of this little firecracker and what she's sort of brings to Georgie, this character. Talk to me a little bit about that journey and about how, I guess, how hard energy performance presence informed, did it inform much of the film and where the story went? Yeah. Yeah. Lola's just like the best human in the entire world. And um, I say one of my best friends, but it's like that TikTok trend where you say they're your best friend and then you ask them and they're like, mm. Yeah, it's nice for you, but you're not all of mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's very much that vibe. But she's just incredible. Like, I, I always say this, and I don't ever mean it as a joke. Like, she probably should have been given, like, half of my writer's fee and, like, a co-writer, co-director credit because the creative impact she had on the project as a whole is mad. And I think one day she's going to, like, 
write and direct a film that is 10 times better than any of our films. Do you know what I mean? She's just like an incredible human. Um, but Shaheen, our casting director, Shaheen Baig is incredible at finding street cast kids in particular. Um, and Lola sent in a self-tape just chatting pure rubbish about home bargains instead of doing anything I'd asked her to do. She just was talking about how home bargains is a much better shop than B&M, which is a, like a fair opinion. I back it. And whether or not it needed a five minute video dedicated to it is another thing, but you know, we'll run with it. Then she came to the audition and kind of wouldn't really say anything. She's quite, um, you can't like buy her a Twix and she's your mate, you know, it takes a yeah. long time her over she's very suspicious as we all should be uh so me and Theo the producer started going to her house for cups of teas like once a week for months until she like deemed us worthy of friendship I'm still unsure if she has we went to like mm-hmm. Legoland a few months ago so I'm like is that are we friends no logical <laughs> friends? And I just think it, I'm playing it cool but I think we're friends isn't it yeah you created an environment for her with your team with your collaborators and stuff that that made her feel safe you created a, a safe and creative playground for her. If you hadn't done that, you wouldn't this, like you say, that trust wouldn't be there for her to give that performance and to to embody this character and to to take this character. So that's it's down to you and your team as well, Charlotte. You know, in terms of I know you're not good with compliments. That's important. I think Lola's level, you you know, like the hierarchy of needs thing. Like is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Lola's <laughs> her top one is like Greg's and McDonald's. And <laughs> Then it's trust and a good environment, you know what I mean? So as long as you're ordering her Greg's and McDonald's every morning, you're so you're if fine. Pass her in the future, that is the key. Okay. Don't take weeks to figure it out like we did. Just get that Greg's on tap from day one, no matter where you are, you've got to get the sausage rolls coming in at 7 a.m. Yeah. I've got a 10-year-old, uh, so I know that if I if I want him to do anything, a McDonald's milkshake is the key to unlock the world, basically. He will literally, he'll wash the car, he'll do anything. <laughs> For a McDonald's milkshake, maybe six nuggets as well. Do you know what I mean? Oh man, there's so much I want to talk to you about. But when it came to the look of the film as well, I love the, like the colouring, the the aesthetic of it, like that flare at the start, the painted walls, the way she throws that black bin and that bin at the start and stuff. I mean, all those things tell you before a word is uttered, tells you a lot about atmosphere, emotion, all that kind of stuff as well. It's, It's just, I just wondered in terms of when you went into to making the film in terms of script and storyboarding and finding your palette and all that kind of stuff. Did you go in with a really kind of clear idea of that, you know, in terms of what you wanted the film to feel like, to look like? Um, yeah, for, for sure. I mean, like, obviously it's, it's made better by all, like once you start getting all the incredible HODs on, then my ideas that, you know, like my one million pound for one page ideas have suddenly become achievable because someone's like, don't be silly, Charlie, like that's a dumb idea, but here's the way we can do it. Um, so yeah, like to, to an extent, for sure, I think me and Molly, um, my DP, she's like absolute icon. Her film just like won at Cannes. She's just like a creative legend, absolute icon. She, We came up through music videos. So I think we always kind of had that very like music video taste to everything. And in music videos, it's like such a like playground of creativity, you know, like music videos, you just do what you want to create an incredible image or a connection. No one's there being like, oh, but the continuity and what does it mean for the story? No one ever said yeah. that music it's just like dash whatever you want it 
so I think a lot of it came through that we'd sit down with a script and be like how can we make this more music video and because we're probably both like super restless and low attention so we were just like how can we make this fun and really stress the producer fear out by doing something stylized that's going to make no sense for the story arcs so it was like a combo a combo of that um and all the people around you know like Oliver the costume designer and Eleanor my production designer all kind of came on board to that like working class joy that we were trying to do and that came part with everything you know we we kept saying if it like pisses down of rain there's only so much even molly manny walker herself can do with a lens change or whatever so mm -hmm. uh, painting the houses i was super like into from the start obviously stressed fear out but it is though <laughs> it's that kind of look, like i remember and it's so interesting as well sort of a a kind of child's perspective on grief as well it was such a it's such a beautiful story to tell, I think, as well. You know, it's one of the main themes of the film, for me anyways. Like, I, I remember I was seven and my cousin was eight and she she died, you know, and kind of having that first of not really understanding it, you know, and not really understanding that she physically wasn't going to be there anymore sort of thing and being sort of almost kind of protected by the adults around you of kind of of not talking about things and about, but all you wanted to do was talk about it really and kind of to ask questions and things like that. You know, and also finding humour in dark times. And I, and I think that that's a real working class thing as well in terms of how humour is a tool. It's a handy thing to have that can help in so many ways as well. And um, was the tone something that was really important to you about the film, you know, in terms of of kind of finding that balance about about the two things, really? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's the thing we like grappled with the most in the edit. It's what made our edit so tricky. I think it's like a hard one to kind of manage especially with like someone as unconfident with writing and stuff as I am I've not done anything before other than shorts so it's that childlike perspective that helped I think like similar to to your experience I've always found that actually as kids we are like much more in touch with emotions like grief and I think kids actually can you know because you don't have that filter it's the adult yeah. kind of a like don't talk about that don't go into that space and talk about that and I found when we were writing the film, that was like what me and Theo were, were drawn to and, and kind of researching. I like lost my dad and my nan as I was writing. And I found like all these adult books about grief, like take it into such an intellectual and academic space. And it's, it's not, it's a feeling. And actually when you kind of speak to kids who have experienced different things, not always grief, but just different emotions, they're so so much more willing to to be present and it's kind yeah. of like a, it feels like a language that we unteach them if you know what I mean especially in the UK where we're like oh don't talk about that don't talk about that that's not a good that's not a good subject it's like we're like they start in quite a good place and are very capable of having them conversations and then we slowly teach ourselves to like not have them and to shut that sides of our of our brains and our emotions off so I think that was like that was where the tone come from and, and then it was honestly is like I think Lola really carried the tone on her shoulders. Like poor Lola carried the whole film on her shoulders. Like what a what a challenge for a bloody eleven year old on like eleven. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was Lola. She has such a way of like, which I do find is a working class kid thing. She's like so mature yet so immature. If you know what I mean. Like she yeah. has that balance of you can sit down and have the most like adult professional conversation with her. And then suddenly it'd be like, oh, there's a, there's a pack of Haribo over there. And it's like, oh, cool. We were just having a really serious chat, Lola. But do you want to just, yeah, yeah. Or you give her like a water pistol and suddenly she's just <laughs> shooting. 
Harrison Allen for the for hours, and you're like, Lola, please chill out. Like we need, we've got to do the film. So it's just yeah, she carried it totally, definitely. How much of the script was kind of there, and how much did you allow her to kind of play? Because there's, I mean, there's so many scenes I could talk about. You know, like when they're when they're robbing the bank. Do you want me to be honest? You know, when they're sort of saying about they're doing a they're you know, they're testing people's bikes and all that. It's so great. And then who, you know, that whole thing about who said you could use the washing machine? Um, come on, do your job properly. All that kind of stuff. To then that really kind of like, I didn't think I needed you when he says about cuddle and she's like, I don't know, I need someone and all that stuff. I mean, there's so many great lines and conversations and reactions and was all that written down and did you, but did you give her a bit of freedom to, to react, I guess, and be the character and respond, I guess? Yeah, like she had her and Alan in particular had all the kind of freedom in, in the world, like, uh and Lola in particular is like incredible at improv like she can talk pure rubbish for hours and hours like it's sensational kind of levels of skills she's got there but yeah it was a mix it was a mix we kind of we gave them the script beforehand but then I didn't like them to obsess over the script they very much like wanted to have a shorthand so I was like this is the scene where this happens but beyond that you do you do you know what I mean um especially because of their age you know as much as we all wish we still are in touch with our childlike selves and can speak like a 12 year old or 11 year old like if you actually read like read my dialogue and words become uncool so quickly they every day would be like no Charlie you can't say that anymore that's not a cool word and I'm like, oh, it was a year ago like what's happened lads it's so quick <laughs> um, so yeah she, she did tons of improv her, her and Harris were great at improv as well and sometimes we had to put a ban on improv because she would kind of intentionally she hated the emotional scenes so yeah. she would take them into like really dark places she had this big improv story about a spider that lived in the corner and it was a grandma and it had a collection of kitchen knives I think it was like a serial killer on the estate you know so she goes quite sometimes you've got to be like that save that for like your first horror film that's not it's not for this film Lola yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing oh god kids imagination isn't it the best thing ever when it came to music though you know you've got that kind of that brilliant sort of kick in with the streets turn the page and then the music's so, it's not sparse, but it's not, it's not over. There's not loads of music in there, but when it does come in and when it's there, when Patrick scores there, it's kind of, the blend is so beautiful. Like, you know, there's so much beautiful atmospheric noise going around the film, you know, from the, the estate and all that kind of stuff and the bikes and all that kind of thing. The cues sometimes can kind of come in and you don't even realise sometimes it's so beautifully and subtly and brilliantly mixed and weaved in. What was your kind of thought process coming in with regards to music and how you wanted to to play with music and use music in the film? Uh, uh, Patrick, I've been working with like since one of my first projects. I've I've not really worked with other composers, and he's like one of my best friends in in the world. Um, and he's actually someone who admit that I am one of his best friends. It's not like a Lola situation where I'm calling them <laughs> my best friend, but they're not. I swear, Patrick is one of my best friends. I promise. Because because I've always found I can't massively. Um, talk about music in a way that isn't like instinctual or emotional and he is just brilliant at translating that sometimes I think he's stitched me right up because if I ever have to work with another composer I'll go in and I'll be like it's you know a bit sad but a bit happy and they'll be like what like you like so Patrick is just um incredible I think with everything like the script we always said the script is like Georgie has has kind of wrote it you know a year after something has happened the script is meant to feel like it is her retelling of a story and kids naturally embellish and 
the everything had to come from that. So the cinematography, the style and, and the score as well. So Patrick was very much like trying to ground it in like the chaos of like an 11 year old's mind who is happy when they've had Harry Bones, sad when they're not, you know. So it all kind of came from from that like thought process of how how can we make this kind of childlike and experiment with it. And he is naturally so so like subtle and I don't mean that in a bad way at all like mm. he just really like lets the scenes have their space and like likes music to like kind of almost creep up on you like some of the some of the cues I kind of forget that they're in there until suddenly they hit me and then I'm like oh Patrick you are an icon what a also that kind of those worlds that the different worlds that there are within the film you know there's the there's the real world and then there's the kind of perspective of you know the dreamlike world or whatever it is and and that I think really complements what he's done with that as well in terms of how the music can take you into those moments as well as kind of visually yeah no and he's like very much a obsessive obsessive world person like as soon as we kind of mentioned the the scrap metal tower into the sky you know he was delving into that and like was determined to find a way to make like metal sound emotional um so he's very much like into into that approach and into kind of meeting people that are part of the project and he's very like you know if you start a script two years before you start shooting it will be Patrick who is calling you chasing you like should we just sit in the studio for a day and I'm like Patrick we're like three years off of a green light here lad like let's chill out in it and he's like it'd just be fun in it to kick some ideas about um so yeah he's he's incredible and he is very much like into it from from back in the day yeah Thank you. 
Does that feed back into you though then if you are having those kind of chats with him way ahead of a you know of a camera rolling or being on set or whatever does that feed then into kind of to where you are in the pre-production of the film. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like, I I wouldn't really, like, call Patrick the composer of the film. I would, like, call him, like, a, yeah, like, a mad essential collaborator. Um, like, we were going on in lockdown. We would, like, sit at the Emirates Stadium for, like, three, four hours at a time just talking about what was making us sad for the day and different floors. He's, like, and how that kind of connects to music. Like, Patrick is, like, one of the most like emotionally intelligent people I've ever met. And I've always thought like composing is such a mix of having to be so incredibly emotionally intelligent and capable of having those conversations as, as well as technically incredible. And he kind of mixes the two. So so from even script writing stage, you know, even the conversations with him about, about grief and about emotions like feed into the script. And I think that's the process with like everyone who's a part of it, you know, like Molly's one of my best friends and we were chatting about it so early. Theo, my producer, very much all feeds in and it's like ev- everyone's film. That way, if it does terribly, get to blame them all. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, you were all part of it as well, right? <laughs> Not having our wearing an Arsenal shirt. Devastating. Last time, isn't it? Absolutely. I feel like Arsenal didn't get back to us, but also Oliver liked the colours of West Ham. Obviously, I can't. <laughs> Arsenal's a bit red, isn't it? A bit mad on screen, but. Yeah. <laughs> oh, West Ham and cheese is my ten-year-old calls them. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Killing you like that. Ugh. We've got a mate staying with us at the minute, actually. Who's a? Is he a Spurs fan? And my husband's Arsenal, and he wouldn't drink his cup of tea out of his Arsenal mug this morning. It's like that. Come on, it's got a bit far. Come on. It's quite far. Yeah, yeah. I love that though. What about the streets track? Was that kind of something you found, you know, in terms of of that being the, you know, it's the first piece of music we hear. So yeah, talk me through kind of 
deciding on that? Was there a journey of what that was going to be or was it always going to be that or? It was almost always going to be that really, even in really early drafts. I mean, in, in a hopeful way, obviously, until yeah. it, like Amazing Music Supervisor came on board, we didn't know if we would actually get the permission on our epically like low music budget or whatever. But um, it always like the streets music always summed up like working class childhood and, and kind of that dark humour that comes out of those worlds to me. Like, you know, like playing it on like a tinny like Walkman or whatever when you're coming back from school, those tracks have just always really, yeah, just been that for me and represented like such a period of time. Um, mm. So it's kind of from early and I just love the energy of that track. It was always written in. That's it. Turn the page on the day, walk away. Cause there's sense in what I say. I'm 45th generation Roman, but I don't know or care when I'm spitting. So return to your sitting position and listen, it's fitting. I'm miles ahead and they chase me Show your face on TV then we'll see You can't do half my crew laughs At your rhubarb and custard verses You rain down curses but I'm waving your hearses Driving by, streets riding high With the beats in the sky All stare, eyes glazed Garage burned down, the fire raged For 40 days and in 40 ways But through the blaze they see it fade The sea of black, the beaming heat on their faces Then a figure emerges from the wastage Eyes transfixed with a piercing gaze One hand clutching his sword raised to the sky They wonder how, they wonder why The sky turns white, it all becomes clear They felt lifted from their fears They shed tears in the light after six dark years Young bold soldiers The fire burns, cracks and smoulders Five years older and wiser The fires are burning on fire, never tire Slay warriors in the forests and on hire We sing We got permission and we were going to use Dry Eyes Mate as well Because there was going to be this big epic story where the spiders were having a divorce and things like that but it was it was like yeah it was I don't know why I was doing it I was just like going a bit mad and dry your eyes was going to be like the divorce track but and I would have been so hyped to I love that track but then yeah she'd do an alternative video for him for that yeah, I think he'd love that. I'm sure he'd really love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll reach out, I'll DM him. Yeah. Mike! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, in terms of that background of music videos as well, do you have a kind of, when you think about making music videos, is there one that really springs to mind as being the kind of, you know, a really great experience that, I don't know, you found really inspiring that was kind of like, oh, yeah, this is this is a great experience. This is I'm learning a lot from this to, to kind of take forward. I don't know like I, I really loved like I miss the kind of organic feeling of like turning up to like grime videos and you can have a plan but look if that rapper don't want to go with your plan then you're not going with it do you know what I mean or yeah. sometimes they'll be like oh no like I've got my my trainers are looking a bit mad and then bang you're waiting two hours whilst we all go and get new trainers even though there's no full body shot in the video do you know what I mean so it's like just that in general really teaches you to kind of roll with the the chaos and remind yourself that everything is like not that deep as long as like Lola and Alan are happy on set then it's not that deep <laughs> I mean it's cool I love film but when yeah we're making a film and it's a privilege and it's sick so I think music videos help you help you yeah. I can never remember a, a particular one I think I always this is like the no it's not uncool but I should like reference a cool grind video, but I'm always like the, um, I did a Mumford and Sons video and I got to meet like loads of horses. Meet them is the wrong word, isn't it? But it felt like a meeting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
they're living things so you met them yeah totally it'd been strictly kind of donkey rides on the like red car seat <laughs> so I was pretty hype about the horses about filming horses I felt like I was doing like an epic Jane Austen vibe that was a great time yeah a western next that's what you need to do western <laughs> tell totally Theo. tell Theo because he is suppressing my expensive ideas <laughs> on the day <laughs> I'll DM him <laughs> One of the scenes that's kind of had a really lovely life on, you know, on, on social media is the dancing scene um, with the two of them and stuff. And it's it's such a, a beautiful kind of moment and a really pivotal point as well, like in their relationship and in the journey of those characters as well. Was there, did you have, I don't know, did you have music on set? Did you play music on set at all in and around that or at any point on, on the, the film? Um, no, not massively. It was a dance that... Lola and Alan had been teaching all the crew because they used to go off at lunch and do like TikTok dances, which is like everyone now. I didn't know it was such a such a thing. <laughs> Me and Theo are trying to get on it, but we're not quite as like looking as good. Um, so it was it that came from Lola. That scene in the hangar was very much like we we filmed se- semi chronologically in that as their Harris and Lola's relationship in real life developed, so did the on screen one, and that was our our last scene on our last ever day. And by oh, then, wow. Lola trusted him; she was very suspicious of him till then. Not for a reason, obviously. He's a lovely man, great human being, very selfless. But on that day, they were like the best of friends, and they'd reached kind of the height of their of their friendship. So it was very much like. We're just gonna film, and you guys do like absolutely whatever you want. And yeah, they really were very magical. I think she'd been trying to teach Harris that dance for most of the shoot as well. So <laughs> it was, yeah, she's just using it in her favor. I think. Yeah. He his reaction to her throughout the film, I think, is just kind of pitch perfect for that character. It's just it's incredible growth of chemistry for those car. I think it's brilliant. I think he's played it just so great. Really brilliant. Oh yeah, he's a gem. Great human. Yeah. yeah. Been very dodgy haircut that he ran yeah. and dyed himself before starting the film, and like absolutely enraged the hair and makeup designer. Oh, no. he's like it's something Jason would do, and it yeah, so very much <laughs> took, took that character on. But yeah, Harris. Harris is a legend. He was so like I can't imagine another actor giving as much to the young people as he did. You know, he would like hang about when he didn't have scenes just to help them out he would make bad coffee like the where the gritty bits were still in it but it's the effort it's the effort you know what I mean (laughs) we appreciate the effort that we he showed up I loved that I loved your wish list that you did watch list sorry that you did uh which I thought was amazing collection of films and the Paris Texas thing as well I loved that of the kind of in the little nods to that in the film as well with the cars and stuff and also just in terms of Weirdly, like the the emotional thing of like Harold's moving castle as well. I felt like there was a kind of I love that film. I watched that film so many times with my kids as well. It's, it's such a great story. I can almost get something more from it every time I watch it. It's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving in a way as well. But Baby Teeth was another one, Shannon Murphy's film that I thought was was kind of beautiful reference and reminded me of that. And I, I remember chatting, I, I lucky enough to get Sh- Shannon on the podcast actually to talk about Baby Teeth because I, I thought that what was it about that film in particular? Charlotte, that you really kind of connected with, enjoyed. Well, I think it was the it was the cast and like the the kind of rawness to their performances and and I don't know. I think I I love like I'm like pretty not low end, but like I'll go to all the box office bangers. You know, I'm like all about 
the bone ultimatums seen Oppenheimer way too many times already. I'm like, Javier. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How and many like, times? Three times we're on now, which is a good time in it. And me and Patrick are going to do a, a fourth because he's not watched it proper. <sighs> he's watched it once in like not IMAX and then another time oh, it was really no. dubbed in Spanish. I'm like, bro, what? What are, like, what are you doing, Patrick? You're ruining the movie experience of the decade. Like, you need to go center IMAX it. So Yeah, at the Science Museum. That's where I saw it. I've not done Science Museum. I've oh. even one is the Science Museum. The IMAX, yeah, Science Museum IMAX is sit right under the the projector and then you, he- you hear the ticking of the projector and it's like it almost levitates you before the film even starts. It's amazing. Okay, magic, magic. Yeah, we're gonna book. Um, but, but yeah, it's just I love stuff where like Baby Teeth is. I think we always spoke about like the characters in Scrapper. They start out flawed and they end flawed. And I think Baby Teeth does something similar. Like Shannon's not trying to say like these characters are gonna be brilliant. They've done a one eighty on all their flaws. Do you know what I mean? Like I think everyone, like the parents in particular, in that are still, you know, they're struggling with their flaws and they forever will be. And they've slightly admitted what their flaws have done to each other's relationships. But she, yeah, I don't know. I think it's something about that. And then just the cast. Like I just think they're yeah. just next level. Like I feel like I'm like watching like the most beautifully shot like documentary almost there's just something about it that made me like really fall into yeah I just loved it so much yeah it's absolutely brilliant as well I'm glad you mentioned Arrival it reminded me to watch that again what's next do you know what's next what is next in life I'm going to play basketball today wicked (laughs) yeah nice times Uh, yeah me time I like it yeah a little cooking a salad you wouldn't say the word cooking chopping a salad and it depends if you're putting chicken in it or something it's like (laughs) chopping a salad um but work-wise yeah i don't know um what do you want to do like like the i want to do like born on a yes i want to do like a born on i want to do like uh christopher nolan vibes like obviously aiming very high and my friend phrase is always like oh Big, big things there, but you know, you got to, I just love yeah. where I go in and I feel like that's what Oppenheimer was to me. I was like, this is what like cinema should be. I was like, I just feel like I come out buzzing. Like it's yeah. incredible. Like the same with like, like Barbie and Arrival and just films like that, that are like such an experience. So I think I want to make those kind of films one day, obviously. And then wherever the paycheck is biggest, you know, trying to create that generational wealth. So all of the money. Yeah. I remember when I saw, I did the whole um, Barbenheimer and I did, so I did Barbie and then I did Oppenheimer the same day and, and saw Oppenheimer at the Science Museum. It didn't feel like, what's it, three and a bit hours or something? Or it didn't feel that long at all. I seriously could have gone straight back in and watched it again sort of thing. It was just, it was like, oh, I love the, the, just the worlds that he and many other filmmakers make. But yeah, I'd love to see you do someone like Born. That would be amazing. Oh my God. Yeah, totally. Before I, I let you go and stop throwing compliments away, can you give me a, a recommendation of something that people should either watch, listen to, read, see, whatever it is, like the last thing culturally that's really like kind of connected with you? Oh god, the pressure, pressure! I gotta like. It's all right, no rush. Gotta bang out the the letterboxed. You know the letterboxed. Love a bit of letterboxed. Are you about letterboxed? I'm I'm getting into letterboxed. I'm I'm a late comer. 
But <laughs> as, as I say with all things, music, film, whatever it is, it doesn't matter when you come to it, so long as you come to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, nice. Letterboxd is a, a great time. There's How on the old top four in it. You can't... Oh, yeah. Love How. Um, what did I watch? I watched the first Slam Dunk the other day, which was like, I'm obsessed with basketball. So the combination of basketball, anime... And the tickets were free because Picture House have given us these cool cards where we get to go to the... I guess you have this already, and it? You've got no. one of these. I feel like you have these cool cinema tickets for free all the time, innit? No. Oh, don't lie. Don't lie. Cool shit. I'm not lying. I'm emailing as we... <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> the first thing they said when they gave it to me, don't tell people about this, and I think I've mentioned it on a <laughs> five things so far. Is it like the equivalent of a Nando's black card? Yes. So sick. It's like the best <laughs> gift I've ever been given in my life. And I will see everything twice, three times. And there's one down the road from me. So they've stitched themselves right up because I'm <laughs> cost them a fortune. But the first slam dunk was a banger. It's like a high school basketball team. And I felt like I was watching a live basketball game. And I'm just looking up at now. My my 15-year-old's massively into anime and manga. And he just got us watching Monster. I don't know if you've watched Monster. Oh my god, it's so it's like sixty four episodes. Like each episode is about twenty, and it's quite an old um, anime. But it's it's the storytelling in it is the characters and the it's phenomenal. It's so great. I'm like I'm like kind of just like being really rude when I should be doing stuff where I'm like that. What are you doing? Nothing. I'm just watching another episode of Monster, <laughs> kind of on the slides, sort I of think. But mm. Slam Dunk. Okay, that's a great shout. Do you play professionally? Come on, boss. I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely shocking. Just love, love basketball. Uh, it's such a, such a joy, such a great time. And then uh, Molly's film, How to Have Sex. Yes. Yes. Film of the year, film of the following year, film of my life, 10 out of 10, epic. So that is what everyone should watch for sure. I'm going to see that next week. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Um, oh, Charlotte, thank you for responding to my crazy DM and coming on and chatting and dealing with the uncomfortableness of having compliments thrown your way because you deserve them. And I'm so excited what's next. And thank you for your time. Anna, thank you for having me. And have yeah. <laughs> yeah, you too. Have fun shooting some hoops. Do they oh. still say that or have we <laughs> passed that? They do? <laughs> okay, great. Bye, darling. See you later. Bye.
Patrick Johnson score to Scrapper. That's Hanger Dance Off. Um, and we are going to get Patrick on the podcast to talk about his brilliant score, uh, hopefully around the time that the film's going to be out on home entertainment. But the film is still in cinema, so make sure you get along to see it. And that rounds off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the brilliant Charlotte Regan. My huge thanks to Charlotte for taking the time to talk to us. As I've already said, multiple times Scrapper is out in cinemas now. Please get along to see it at your local cinema. It is a brilliant film um, and I cannot wait to see what she does next. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with our back catalogue. We're fastly approaching 400 episodes with some of the biggest names in the business and plenty of newcomers like Charlotte. Follow us on socials. We're at Soundtracking UK and we also have a YouTube channel, which would be great if you could subscribe to. And just before talk about next week's guest and talking of socials and things like that if you are a regular to this podcast you'll know that we're very transparent and we started this podcast back in august uh, 2016 ben and i and it kind of just still is ben and i to be honest needless to say a lot has changed since we launched the podcast and one of those is the kind of rise and growth of social media and how important that side of things can be to getting the word out particularly for little independent podcasts like ourselves. We don't have, you know, kind of big corporations, big advertising, all that kind of thing to get behind us and have massive billboards here, there and everywhere. So we really do rely on you guys, word of mouth and that kind of thing. So we're looking to expand the team and we're looking for someone to work part time on our socials. So someone who is kind of really up to speed on I guess all the social platforms that are out there, who's got great editing skills, who's got a real kind of flair for trying to do things a little bit differently, but more importantly, I think as well, or as important, I should say, is a real passion for film because we've got, as I said, almost 400 episodes that we kind of want to dip into to remind people of the wonderful guests that we've had on the show. So yeah, if you're interested or you know someone who might well be um, up for working with us on the podcast, we have put the uh, the job ad is up on a, a platform called Dots. Uh, or you can email me, info at edithbowman.com if you're interested in being part of the team. Send us your CV and yeah, we'll be in touch. Thanks very much. Now next up, we are thrilled to welcome back Oscar winner, multi-award winner, I should say, the composer Hilda Goodnotier, who we last spoke to on the podcast for her phenomenal score for Joker. Uh, a lot has happened since we had that conversation, but she's here to talk about her latest film, which is A Haunting in Venice. And it's Kenneth Branagh's latest trip into the back catalogue of Agatha Christie. Uh, and I've got to say, I think it's my favourite of what he's done with these uh, kind of murder mysteries. It's darker, it's really stylized as well, and I think... The work that him and Hilda have done on this is brilliant. It's out in cinemas this Friday, the 15th of September, so um, it's well worth seeing. And what's well worth listening to as well is our conversation with Hilda next week on Soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs> 